Welcome back, Rampants, to the SAS Ramp Podcast. I'm your host, Podcast Pete. Awesome guest on today. Got to chat with him a little bit before the podcast. Remember, we're calling that the precast. This is Mike Heller. Please welcome to the show Mike's head of go-to-market at Whimsical, awesome product-led growth company. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Pete. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to continue that the free chat and uh, yeah, and then talk to you. Yeah, it was really good. To, I just like getting to know everybody before we jump on the show. And if that part could be recorded, I'm always like, I'm an advocate of like, ooh, that's some good stuff right there too. Like, why don't we just click record before? But some of the things that you were telling me that I'd love to start with today were around your experience, kind of like how you're sitting in the seat you're sitting in today at Whimsical. And it'd probably be beneficial to the audience to know as well, since there's a lot of context there, maybe personal professional growth leading into the experience. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, uh, it's mostly luck actually. So I'll take you all the way back to graduation and then zoom to where I am now. So I graduated in 2010, the economy was awful and I realized that there weren't a lot of interesting jobs out there. So I took the GMAT, figuring out I'd, I'd work somewhere for two years, go to business school and then figure it out from there and ended up finding this company in Singapore that was doing GMAT prep courses that had kind of big ambitions to grow throughout Southeast Asia and, and Asia. Never been to Asia before, totally random opportunity, but I ended up doing it and it was wild, but it worked well. I ended up running the business in Singapore and then opening an office in China. And at the end of that, the thing I realized was we never kind of really got to become a tech business. So everything we were doing was super manual. We had to hire trainers, fly them out, people problems, all this. I knew I wanted to get into tech and do something like that, but more scalable. So I was going to go to business school. And then a friend of mine from college reached out and was like, hey, I work at this company, Dropbox, and we have this team called Online Sales. And we're looking for people that have kind of like weird, interesting experience to throw out the problem. Mm -hmm. It's a bit different than what anyone else is doing. And I didn't know much about tech, but I knew Dropbox. So it seemed like that's an incredible opportunity. And I ended up preparing a lot for that interview and somehow getting this job. And the story there was Dropbox had a couple hundred million users. They were kind of like PLG before that term existed. And the theory of uh, the guys running the, the go-to-market function, OJ, who went to Asana afterwards, and a few others, was like, let's take people with kind of various backgrounds, consulting, banking, weird stuff like I was doing, and, and some people with sales backgrounds, and have them talk to customers and figure it out as they go. So I spent my first six months there doing online chat, five or six people at the same time, with about 70% of my time, and the rest of my time I would spend building drip tracks in Marketo or flying out to Utah to try to onboard outsource folks that would do some of the more repetitive parts that we already had playbooked. And it was a really interesting experience. We started to kind of see some success and Dropbox started building more market features. So at the end of those six months, that team got disbanded. That outsourcing stuff worked well. So we outsourced most of that. And a lot of folks from my team ended up in growth or product roles. But a few of us decided to stay in sales. So I spent the next two years kind of going from no experience to six months of very transactional inbound and some op stuff to getting on calls with, uh, with CIOs and kind of just getting my ass handed to me <laughs> on these sales calls I was really unprepared for. But it was like a, a really good experience for two reasons. One, I got to work for just some really incredible sales leaders that 
were very patient with me, helped teach me how to sell, and then taught me how to kind of handle the ups and downs of a job like that. And then also got exposed to a very different type of go-to-market. And so a lot of my colleagues at that point when we were doing real sales came from great sales orgs and they were trying to cold call and get CIOs on the line. But I ended up spending a lot of my energy figuring out, hey, can we just email a bunch of people or we have every account has a, every account we we're going after had a hundred thousands of, of end users using Dropbox. So I'd work on things like convincing an engineer to scrape LinkedIn to figure out what all their titles were and then get them uploaded into a tool like Outreach, but before Outreach existed. Yeah. Uh, and that would work really well and I would do well. And then at least that specific experiment got shut down because it was against LinkedIn's terms of service to scrape them. Uh, so I spent a lot of time working on these kind of like wonky projects that ended up helping me do well in sales. But at the end of that, Dropbox had gone from 20-ish to 300 AEs over the course of a year and a half. It just became a machine. So I knew it was kind of time to leave. Ended up talking to a bunch of early stage startups that were kind of like tech, like Dropbox, but early and scrappy, like the education stuff I was doing before. And met Clearbit. And when I met them, it was very clear that what Clearbit was building was this data set where data could this B2B enrichment data could be sent in real time through APIs. Like that was exactly what we needed at Dropbox to figure out of those hundreds of millions of users, which ones are qualified for the business plan and should be shown that in product, which ones should sales be reaching out to. Uh, it could allow a team, uh, an organization like Dropbox to do kind of more personalized marketing at scale. So the products, the, the team really resonated with me and I ended up joining as the eighth employee and first kind of mm. full-time uh, go-to-market person. Actually, I'll, I'll pause there. I realize I'm kind of rambling through the early experience, but uh, should, should I keep going, Pete? Or is there anything out there that, that we should pause Dude, on? It's fascinating. I hope I speak for my full audience that, uh, that this is a really interesting journey because a couple of things. Um, one, like, because you called it luck right away, which is like, so luck. It's just, there's no way. Like, there's little pieces in there, but like, it's, I don't know, you're attracting it in if nothing else. Because anybody willing to go out to Singapore and hang out and like, oh, I'll just learn a new language and culture and like do business over here immediately from school is like going to, you're going to make your way. We just hired somebody at Postman who had two years in Tokyo, like almost immediately before. And he's he's an unbelievable person. Like, I'm just like the, the abilities for him to do that just translate in so many strange ways. So very cool on that. And then the thing at Dropbox, like, a very progressive company to just be hiring you guys in and just be like, well, we have a new problem. So we're going to need some new kinds of people. Like that's a very like interest, like that's a cool leader to actually have that insight. And then also give you the space to go work on those projects and not like maybe demand like an immediate ROI from it or something like that. So that's a cool situation to find yourself in, but it found, sounds like you went and like made the most of it. You call them wonky projects, but those sound like just really trying to like be outside of the box, you know, like, and, uh, and come up with those things. So just some commentary here on that. And then the move to Clearbit is interesting because, because you found a company that solved the problem that you were trying to solve at the previous company. So if anybody's kind of curious on maybe what like career stepping stones might look like from one to the next, like if there's a company that's solving it in a more interesting way, 
that might be where you're headed next because you'll understand the pain, the value, maybe the persona who would want it. And it's going to be kind of a progressive company. So I've got no like questions on any of that really to like to further it. We could just keep going, but that's kind of like my snapshot summary, my enthusiasm for what you just told me. Like, did I get it right? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. And I think like on the pick and clear bit, there was luck there as well because I knew the problem existed. I don't think I knew the extent to which kind of PLG was going to become kind of one of the leading forms of go-to-market, which was really the trend that that Clearbit road kind of going from a small company to to now a, at least a moderately sized one. So so that that ended up being something that uh, that powered a lot of the growth. But uh, but yeah, I think that's a good summary. Okay, very cool. Okay, so then what after Clearbit? Directly into Whimsical or like maybe a, a one more little interesting turn first? Yeah, so I spent four and a half years at Clearbit on basically solving whatever the problems were on the go-to-market side. So I probably had nine nine different uh, roles across my time there, trying to make it simpler on, on LinkedIn. Um, and at the end, after four and a half years, this last summer, actually, left, figured I would take a couple months off. I had a, a toddler at home who was just learning to walk and do stuff. So spent some time with him. And then my thought was I would jump in to another one of these companies. Like I, I kind of have some sense of what I did right that went well, what I did wrong that I can now fix. Let's go find another early stage company and, and find like a say go-to-market leadership role. But what I found the fall of 2021 was all the interesting companies I was talking to had raised on these $300 million, $400 million valuations, uh, some with no customers, some with a handful of customers, but definitely not with product market fit. And that was terrifying. So I didn't know what to do. But what started happening was I would talk to these founders and I'd be like, you know, I, I'm just not sure that this is the one for me. I'm still trying to figure out what I want to do next. And they would say, well, why don't you come and kind of help us think through this or help us hire the person if you don't want to do that. And I always thought that, hey, my, my long-term is probably something that's more on the advising, consulting, maybe investing path. So I ended up spending kind of nine months just saying yes to these different types of advising and consulting gigs and had a really kind of interesting time doing it. That's interesting. So, okay. So will you unpack that first part a little bit more because we we might be seeing the other side of that same coin that you just mentioned. Yeah, um, very different now, isn't it? Yes, more recently, of course. So when you were looking at these companies, they were like something that would have an interesting tech, but as far as like revenue fit went like not necessarily, like we did not have like this structured, oh, it's this much money means they must have product market fit. It's this much money. It means they must have go-to-market scale. It's this much like, it was kind of already starting to break all the rules during that time period of what you'd previously known? Well, I think a lot of these companies had really interesting tech and they were going out to solve really interesting problems. But the thing that just scared me as a revenue leader is when you raise on that type of valuation, the expectations for revenue like are immense. And yeah, the head of sales is the person who is accountable to hitting whatever the goals that the CEO signed up with, for, with the raise. And I've kind of lived like one to kind of 40 million ARR thing at Clearbit. 
that process is really hard and it's not this super simple straight line. So maybe I'm, I'm just a little skeptical of my own abilities, but when you think about going from zero or a few hundred K to 10 million in a year or two, it's like, maybe that business has the dynamics they can do that. Maybe they can't, but I didn't really want to <laughs> be in the spot where if the company raised on too high of expectations, I'm on the hook before, before a little more had been proven out. So I ended up taking a pause, but you know, uh, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that was my, my almost year in between, uh, Cleavit and Whimsical. Okay. Okay. And so then uh, let's talk about Whimsical then. Maybe we'll make that transition in because you ended yep. up at Whimsical. Obviously you're there now, had to go to market. And so maybe what was it about Whimsical, any context for Whimsical's growth? By the way, and then just for the audience sake, like I know Whimsical, like we, Whimsical is utilized internally at Postman and anything that I see utilized at Postman, I just, I have a lot of faith in what Postman like puts their faith in. So I, it was the first time I'd ever seen the product and I started using it immediately to like put together our uh, kind of enablement resources. And we just share these things over pretty intuitive drag drop, like Adam add these little places, you know, it's just like thoughts on a board. When my white, when I no longer had a physical whiteboard in an office and never will again, hypothetically, then that was what I started using with the team. So, you know, I know about it, but yeah, for anybody else, plus from the business side, it'd be great to know. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear that, that you're a user, Pete. And yeah, Postman is a great customer of ours. I think an early customer. So, so yeah, I, I guess making the transition, what I ended up finding was I think through the Dropbox experience and the fact that at Clearbit, we worked with basically any of these product-led growth companies were using Clearbit as a data source to power the go-to-market. I ended up just having a lot of like interactions with revenue leaders and growth leaders at these types of companies. So when I started consulting, the thing that kind of seemed to resonate was there are a lot of these product-led growth companies that have, I'd call it like product market fit 1.0, where they have some product that people are going to their website, downloading, using. But they haven't yet figured out product market fit 2.0, which is like, how do you turn that groundswell of adoption and groundswell of usage into something that maybe adds value, not just for the end user, but for the leader of a function. Um, uh, so there's kind of like a repeatable sales motion, or at least that kind of product market fit component of the repeatable sales motion. So I ended up working with a bunch of companies that were solving that same problem. And I think I was useful. I'd spend whatever, 40 hours deep diving, give them some report. And then we start meeting with them a few times a week to work towards some specific goals. And actually, I was talking to Whimsical about something like that. But two, two things kind of became clear. One, that's a problem that takes real time and kind of consistent effort to solve. And I could only do so much with kind of these light consulting engagements. And then Whimsical was the most interesting, like by, by far, of the businesses that was facing I wouldn't say this problem. It's like this opportunity. Whimsical has a few million users. It's multi-use case, multi-persona. It's this diagramming kind of visual design tool that makes, that allows non-designers like myself to build stuff quickly that looks nice. It's kind of, I think, the simplest way to frame it. So figuring out how to take it from this thing that, hey, Pete loves and a few others at at Postman Love to the company has adopted it 
kind of top down. It's being used for use cases across these functions. It is a really interesting problem to solve. It's something that I don't think I would have been able to really make any impact at with some type of, of kind of consulting engagement. So, and then the CRO I work for, Greg Walder, is, is awesome. And someone I worked with at Clearbit as well. We have great chemistry, trust each other. So that also made it a no-brainer. That's really important. Okay, because yeah, there's like two two things people typically talk about if you're going to take an opportunity. And like one is like the company, like is it in the right is it in the right vehicle? Are you in the right vehicle overall? Things like that. Um, you know, can you catch a wave? Are you in a current? There's a lot of different ways I hear people put it. But the other is like, who are you going to work for? Like, who are you actually going to spend all your time with all day, every day? Because it might not, you know, the company is, you know, obvious vehicle, but like <laughs> who's sitting shotgun or whatever, or in the driver's seat in your shotgun, however it seems to work. So it sounds like yep. you kind of had like the one, two on that one, which is excellent to hear. Yeah, that, that definitely made it, made it a no-brainer. And then we ended up hiring a few other folks we've worked with before. And so we've got this uh, lot of problems to solve, but we don't have to worry about, hey, do we trust each other? Do we know how to work together? Like, how do we figure out this stuff remote? Hopefully soon we'll be hiring a bunch and we'll be facing those problems in a real way. But it, it makes it nice. And I think it's just very helpful in the early days to have that trust if you can find a chance to work with the same people multiple times. That is cool. And that's something that can't be replicated necessarily with software. But you did say something I hear a lot, and this is like more of an aside, not a podcast thing, but people who go in and do consulting because they're very capable and able of solving this kind of problem for multiple different organizations. And it doesn't have to be done full time, but they're like, I'm pretty much working for this one company now, but I'm not really working. I'm not a W-2 employee. I just am consulting for them and it's taking all my time. And they'll try to do that for two or three companies at the same time. They get really tired and you see sabbatical hit the LinkedIn <laughs> thing next. Yeah. So yeah, I hear that from you too. Like this was taking a lot of time and efforts and energy. So what is it? What There's different problems that are being solved. But like in the world where you're solving problems so well with software that people, you don't even have to have like sometimes a human to human interaction for the, for the free or the self-serve motion. Like what is it about the challenge of trying to, go from like a, a self-serve to a sales-serve motion or figure out these problems that really just takes the human brain that you cannot just like download your software and be like, solve this for me, please. Like, what's the map, the, the, yeah, what's the challenge there? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, one theory I have is that you think about like the first version of product market fit a company gets to, you have like a small startup and everybody, all they're trying to do is figure out hey, like, what can we do to get this thing moving, right? You've got founders, early employees. Everyone's trying to figure out how do we get to this, like, early traction, product market fit, or, like, a bunch of users if it's a PLG business. But a company whimsical, you kind of have to do that again. So, so that happens, and it's, like, great. And now you've got a lot of employees who are working on a lot of hard problems to maintain the business and keep growth going. And you have employees, you have to have processes and HR and all of these different things are happening. But you kind of have to go back to like, like almost this founding moment of how do you go from existing usage to a, a, a repeatable value prop to drive kind of like larger organization plans that are, are stickier, have much higher net revenue retention. And of the reasons you see companies that have recently IPO'd or at least they used to be valuable. The recent PLG companies that are public have had, had such great valuations and are still amazing businesses. So being able to solve that is like 
it's a sales problem, but it's also a business problem. I think being able to work on both is really the appeal to, to work somewhere I like whimsical. So it's this overlap of the product with the value, essentially, like, like not just the value, because I guess that could be a framework that moves across the whole thing, but like the product's value with the communicated value to the people who not just would be users, but would actually be purchasers of ultimate purchasers of a software like that. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So for us, um, I think you could almost think of a product like Whimsical where end users use it, they share with their teammates, and then eventually an IT leader or a security leader might a kind of the more enterprise version with more admin controls and security. And when someone leaves, the data kind of goes to the right place. That's sort of like the three different phases. So when I started at Whimsical, step one was basically, how can we make that last piece when you have enough Whimsical users at a company like Postman? How do we sell them the upmarket version? So that's what I've been working on. I can talk through kind of what we found works, what we found doesn't work. And then the two phases earlier in the funnel, how do you go from someone on the website to somebody using the product and somebody using the product to kind of a group with an activated use case? Or a lot of folks are calling it a PQA, a product qualified account. Or the other two stages of the funnel that they're not the parts that I'm directly responsible for, but I own the overall revenue number. So I am very focused and kind of involved in, in those parts as well. Will you speak about that first challenge then, the one that affects the revenue number? Because that is like, it is massive. And then oftentimes that product, that the one that is often referred to as the enterprise product is like three times as expensive, two or three times as expensive. And then there's something about it that doesn't affect the end user, almost never affects the end user like capability. Sometimes they can do everything they need to do in the free version. But it's only something that somebody way up high who may not have ever even been in Whimsical will care about. There is a leap that has to happen there that's pretty interesting. So any insights you have on that of like what's been working, what other people should kind of consider would be awesome. Yeah, I think there are a few things that have helped us get much better at this. And the first is to basically be realistic about what it is that we're selling. So I don't need to sell people on the fact that the product is great. Like, if I need to do that, the product wouldn't be great. So I don't need to go to an IT person and tell them, hey, like, it's so easy to use. It's beautiful. Like, it's fast. Their users are telling them that if they've used it, they already know that's true. So the discovery that we need to do and that's made this process go much better is around their needs. It's around, hey, wh why are you interested in getting SAML SSO set up? What projects is that associated to? Like what types of content do you think exists or have you heard exists across these whimsical users? And is that content that needs to be wrapped up with security that needs to be onboarded in the right way? It's figuring out, hey, like I know you want this, you want the enterprise version, but who do you have to go sell it to? Like is your finance team going to agree that this is kind of a worthwhile place for you both spend your company's money and your time, your IT so you're going to be underwater. And like, if they ask you that, how will you make the case? So there kind of are all these discovery questions that you go through that don't really have that much to do with the end user product, which is kind of like an unintuitive thing for someone who might have spent a lot of their time selling products to functional leaders. So that, that would be the first piece. 
And then the second piece for us is like, well, what is the pushback that we get? When people aren't buying, why aren't they buying? And we started tracking that. And really, it came down to two things. One, this IT person that wanted to buy the consolidated version would get pushback, right? That the company would say, or that finance would say, hey, we already have another tool. In our case, something like, like Lucidchart or Miro. Why do we need Whimsical? Just tell them to use that, right? Uh, so that, that was a thing that we kept getting pushed back on and ended up building a narrative that wasn't so much to sell this IT person, but it was to arm them to have the conversation with mm. their finance person. And that's made a big difference. And the other reason it's made a big difference is, is some data analysis where initially, like any sales org, we're trying to go get big deals, right? It's like, you want to buy 25, you know, there's this many users on your account and you want the whole engineering team, like surely get to 100. And that ended up creating a lot of friction in our sales cycle, right? And this IT leader is trying to think through, do I get 100? That's where the discount is. Do I get 25? I don't know. And they, this would get deprioritized, that they would kind of go, go dark, we come back later on. What we found running data on these company plans that we were selling was that the seat growth, the net revenue retention was incredibly high. So it didn't actually matter that much if we started with 20 seats or 40 seats. What mattered was that we started and that Whimsical became a company sanctioned tool that users could then find because their coworkers are putting a Whimsical diagram in Notion or in Slack and everyone else is seeing it. Say, hey, I want to do that too. So we ended up switching our pricing model to make it easier for our buyers to buy. And I'll talk through what we're doing now, if that'd be useful. But I'll, I'll pause because I think I'm talking about it again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Really cool on the discovery side. It's really interesting to note. I came from a top-down sales motion myself and then moving into heavy product-led growth, like heavy, like, like pure product-led growth. It was, everything was, if not, it's not exactly upside down. That would be easier. It's twisted. It's like a 45 degree thing and everything you have to like turn your head just a little bit to get your head around it. And so the fact that what you said about like, you, it's not, you're not selling the product anymore. Like it's a different conversation you're having. You're kind of skipping that level. But there was also this challenge of like you lose deals to your growth team. So company wins, yay, but like you still have a number. And so there's two particular leaders in, in my organization that I'm thinking of, and you're like the two friendliest people you've ever met in your life. But then they're kind of pitted against each other with literally the same number, the both of them, annual number. And it's so funny and one's growth and one sales. So kind of, but overcoming that as the sales leader and trying to understand how that they can better have that kind of conversation. So status quo of just staying in whatever sales serve motion they're in won't kind of stand. Anyway, interesting pieces, uh, trying to interesting how you guys kind of took out the friction by just lowering ultimate deal size or not extending beyond one department. It sounded like to let them just carry forward, like whatever you were thinking of, that's probably right. Going with the customer's gut instinct and just helping them along the journey, knowing it won't be if, but when later down the road, perhaps. Yeah. And the deal structure that we've been using has been start with a reasonable minimum, but we're not going to charge you anything for additional users that use the product over the next six months. So get everyone who might be actively using it to use it. Typically, what we hear from IT is like, well, I don't know if I need them to be in there. I need them to be in there. It's like, okay, well, why don't you just make it available then? And at the end of the six months, you can stay with that minimum or you can 
and everyone who joins, or you can keep the most active users who are using it. But because we're blessed with this product that people love, they'll talk about, people share internally, that ends up working, or at least the theory based on the data that we have is that is going to work pretty well. It's a new thing, so I can't, I can't give you the results yet. But I'm quite confident that method kind of is a win for everybody because the customer ends up paying for what they're using. And that also works great for us because we get a great net revenue retention rate and really happy customers that continue to grow. That's cool. That like, I've seen like a really interesting graphic that's kind of like, like top down approach or traditional sales all the way to PLG. And like on that far side is usage based sales. And that seems to almost push it a little bit further towards that usage side, which is, again, it's very like, it's very progressive, very much favors the customer. It's almost beyond PLG in a sense. So it sounds like that's where y'all have gone to, which is interesting. I guess I'm, we're lucky that we have a CEO who believes in this stuff. I, I think it would be easy for a, a CEO of a company like this to like, no, like your sales, here's what you make. I need you to bring in whatever, 5X your salaries of the reps. But I think because we kind of know what we are and, and we have behind the fact that right now the most valuable thing is to drive usage. And we're confident that, that these smaller deployments will grow. It just, it makes sense to start there. But uh, I, I can't say that it's like, uh, I've done something or we've, my boss and I've done something amazing. It's the buy-in kind of broadly that, that makes this possible. And I think there seems like there's more, yeah, it seems like there, there's more kind of awareness that like the revenue models are just different. Whereas if, if I was in a similar role five years ago, I, I think it would be really hard to convince an executive, hey, let's merge the sales team based on number of deals and not necessarily the amount of revenue, that would be probably a pretty foreign concept and not as, as well recepted by CEOs and their VC board members. I can imagine. I, you said five years. I, yeah, min, minimum. I mean, maybe maximum five, that is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe three years ago, it would have been hard to sell. You mentioned data, like analyzing. Is this, you're kind of mentioning like the customer usage data, something that you're seeing in the background, just some, something out of your business intelligence data that you often look at. Are there any certain metrics that you like that you might want to just call out for other people to be like, oh yeah, like to, to correlate with, we do that too, or something interesting that they might want to think about looking at that's been helpful for you? I don't know that we're doing anything like particularly interesting, but I, I think that the main piece of data is you look at your net retention rate. So if you have $100 in revenue, how much revenue you have at the end of the year for your kind of overall user base. And then you'll get the um, same metric for whatever your organization or enterprise plan, if you're a PLG company like ours. And I think what everybody tends to see, and I think David Sachs has a great blog post on this, is the team's adoption or the enterprise adoption, it just ends up having a much higher growth rate. So for us, it's like, 160%. If we start with $100 of the organization revenue, at the end of the year, we're at $160. Um, and that's before we go and sell new deals. So you end up having this business that's organically growing, or a part of our business that's organically growing at a great clip. And if we can kind of just keep adding more revenue to that base and the product, which she drives everything, it's not go to market at a company like ours, but the product remains great and kind of becomes greater and takes on more use cases, then we're going to be in great shape over time to have a, a great business. So that, that's 
kind of how I think about it, but it's just looking at, yeah, net retention of the enterprise plan or maybe of like large customer, large workspaces or, or large deployments if you don't have an enterprise plan versus the revenue of like one user or two user that might sign up and churn and uh, again and not be as as stable of a kind of base to grow from. Yeah, I've had some conversations with like venture capital leaders and had a a uh, gentleman named Sudi on the podcast just recently, like they would love it. They would hear that and be like, yes, completely agreed. Perfect. That's what we're looking at as well. So can't argue Sudi with any from of Battery? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's the best. He, he was at Segment before, which was a very like, close partner of ours at Clearbit. That guy is super smart. All right. Check him out. Episode, what was it? Episode yeah. 30? So episode 30. And we'll send it over. Yeah. You, you wasted your time <laughs> listening to me. You should listen to that one. Dude, it's so it's so interesting. And he spoke at at Pendo's conference as well. And uh, anyway, it's uh, the stuff that they put out. I like what Battery puts out as well. I think I think some of their posts have been awesome. Hey, you mentioned a blog. You said David Sachs. Uh, yeah, there's a David Sachs blog post on the value of Teams revenue, which just lays it out in a really kind of clear mathematical way, where it's like, yeah, if you're a, a single player SaaS business, right, you start with one user kind of as the atomic unit who maybe pays you 10 bucks a month. I mean, they might stay on average for a year, right? So then one user, the lifetime value is worth $120. But if you have a Teams product where you've got a 10, 10 users, which grows every year, the lifetime value of that might be $20,000 because it might just kind of keep growing over time and compounding. So that was really a useful blog post for me to kind of fully understand the concept, but also to be able to kind of express it well with, with coworkers as we try to kind of socialize this. At That's cool. I can share okay. it. Yeah. If there's a way to yeah. I love it. it. Yeah. Put it in the show note. It sounds yep. like a nice article to sum it up, man. Cause I can keep going down these rabbit trails. I find it really interesting because it correlates with various pieces of the journey of like companies I've spoken with and then the company I'm at, but, uh, Maybe the finale for the whimsical side of things, as you look at the next fiscal year, whatever that happens to be for you guys, I'm just kind of thinking of 2023 in general. What's your focus going into next year? Like what challenge do you most look forward to slash dread? I don't know. Like it can be the same challenge and often looking uh, into next year. Yeah. On the personal side, I'm having a baby in two weeks, so... That's both look forward to and dread a little bit. That'll be number two. Yeah. You, you, no, that'll, that'll be number, uh, uh, that, that's on the personal side. Yeah. So I'm, how, I'm how old is uh, number one? Like how old will uh, brother? Just, just about, two. about two. So we'll have two, two under two. I'll be very busy outside of a work as well. Oh my goodness. I only have the one. She's seven now. She's like, uh, like set it and forget it. Like it's, she's easy, man. She's like, so. But there's that time period, not infant either. Infant, I thought was going to be so hard. It's when they start moving. I'm like, where did you go? No, stop. Get out of the street or whatever it happens to be. I was so concerned about water and cars after that, like swimming pools and like roads. And I just thought, I thought the hard part was done because she was sleeping through the night. So anyway, you know how that goes. Now you have the one that's mobile and you're going to have the one that's waking you up at night. So yeah, God bless you. Yeah. We'll, yeah, we'll have you on our thoughts. The, the two, yeah, she's going to be. A unique set of challenges. So, so <laughs> that that's one. On the business side, though, I, I think it's just two things. 
One is we are starting to be able to sell these organization plans, our, our version of kind of an enterprise plan at a much higher velocity with this new model, but we're still super early. I have a team of one and a half. I'm doing a lot of the sales and we just need to get better at that and kind of have it be a more repeatable kind of like velocity sale that, that we can execute on. The other piece, which is kind of a bit more cross-functional is like I mentioned, whimsical is really any function can use it and any function you can use it for a number of use cases. But I think what's going to make a big difference is, and I got this from this guy, David Peterson, who was early growth person at Airtable, is we need to kind of like identify some use cases that we as a business agree are going to be the ones that can take us from a single user to a group of people that are coming back to Whimsical every day, right? And that's what I think will seed kind of the continuous usage that'll allow basically my team to scale with the go-to-market motion. So we've got some ideas on what those could be, but it's probably a combination between, for a product like ours, of getting a couple product teams on the same page as marketing and go-to-market and pick it. So, so that's a project that we're kind of still discussing at Whimsical that I think will be pretty critical for our success next year. That makes total sense. Where does the, when you're thinking through those, oh, something in the eye, when you're thinking through those, what does the, like, where do those come from? Do they come from customer conversations, ongoing customer conversations, or do you go and see like, like where the connections are being made in your usage data? Do you see like, oh, they shared it seven times. You probably don't know why just from looking at the numbers, but then is there some kind of combination? Is there some strategy behind how you're finding out what those use cases might be? Yeah, I mean, right now it, it's really anecdotal. Our go-to-market team had a lot of conversations. Our product team is pretty good about talking to and interviewing customers, but I don't know. It, it's a work stream that we're about to kick off. I think it's going to be a combination of looking at usage trends. So it's looking at roles or even pockets of people with specific roles that have specific usage patterns, surveys, which we haven't done a lot of historically, and then a lot of kind of like customer development, discovery like calls that we need to do, but sort of like it's a broad project. It's, it's, but it will come from the user base. I don't think it, for a pro company like ours, where the problem is not like, are there use cases we can support? It's that there's 70 of them or probably more, probably hundreds of them across our user base. And it's like, which are the ones that we can actually use to, to drive these types of usage? And then there's other things you think about, like which of these use cases have the highest chance of increasing virality mm -hmm. at the company that's using? So it's like, I think you would rather have it be something that like product or ops does because they're so kind of central hubs in a company maybe than something that like a sales team or an engineering team does. But maybe if a sales team does it, it's externally viral. So a lot of things to think through. And I don't want to pretend that I've got the answer to this one, but hopefully, yeah, we can chat again at some point. Maybe it's it, six months to a year and I can tell you what, what worked or what didn't. Dude, I, this, like, honestly, with this podcast, I could just run the same route I ran this year with all these same leaders and come find out one year later what that looked like. It would be it would be very interesting, probably like more valuable than just getting initial discussions again. Um, 
what be a brutal year. It's going to be a brutal year to revisit how fast people told you they were going to be growing and what their projects were. Man, that was, yeah, that would, that, would be a, that would be a fun project. Get that in the spreadsheets. Let's see what that looks like. What you're doing is fascinating. I mean, just kind of like, just like uh, recognize like this, this, this mix between a, a growth leader and a revenue leader. I feel like uh, you and, you know, hundreds more, I'm sure, but like you and a handful that I know are kind of like a prototype of what we're going to see moving forward as like a much more standard or norm, but it's just, it's born out of an odd background. There's a book called Range. That I love because I'm a former uh, high school biology teacher and a soccer coach who transitioned to tech. And I've had like seven roles, like distinct different roles in tech in seven years. And I appreciate it because it talks about like different kinds of people. The people can go deep or the people can kind of go wide. Your experiences have been so wide, which has brought you to this point of this thing that you do. And it's not really, it's not otherwise trained for or not much experience around it. So anyway, just recognizing the interesting mix of talents that you bring to an organization and I think it's going to be really financially viable for you for the future as well. So good job, kids pick the right one. <laughs> I hope you're right. I just might not have any, <laughs> any specific skills, but uh, I'm doing my best and hopefully making some progress. I appreciate that. And that is a great book. I read that as well, but I feel like I just read it because it validates kind of the things I've done. And it's like, oh, this talks about how great I am. Dude, I know. I'm like, I don't need any more challenges. There's enough challenges. Let me read one that tells me I'm a good guy. Yeah, Yeah, perfect. That's so funny. Okay. Well, Mike, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. I know the audience will find this fascinating. We'll try to get some of those references in the show notes. And then, yeah, talk to you next year when your children are three and one. And whimsical is that fill in the blanks, you know, number of users, number amount of revenue. And we'll just, we'll celebrate them. (laughs) I love it. Pete, thanks so much for having me on. This was, this was super fun. 